0: Yeah, you get it every time.
1: And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price.
0: Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
2: All right, welcome back to Instagram Live. I'm Dr. George Faginbaum with Barbell Medicine. Drew Singh says, I lose brain cells when you don't post vlog. I lose brain cells when I don't post vlogs. Is doing leg extension machine bad for your knees? Nope. Welcome back to Instagram Live. I am Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum with Barbell Medicine. It is October 25th, Friday. I'm going to try to get in the habit of doing these live things a little bit more often. I miss them. I miss you guys. Uh, if you've never joined us on one of these before, it's just a Q&A session. You guys ask questions. I try to provide answers, nuanced answers, to the best of my ability. Uh, if I don't get to your question, I apologize. If it seems like I skipped over your question, I also apologize, but uh, perhaps this isn't the best place for it, in which case... I would say head over to our forum, uh, go to barbellmedicine.com, look on the forum, sign up for the forum, and uh, you can ask questions. We're pretty active on there. Uh, Let's go over some announcements first. So announcement number one, uh, we have a bunch of new content coming out next week. We got a podcast with Alan Flanagan. We have a blog post about that uh, podcast going up the same day. That's on Monday as well. Have our vlog from Raw Nationals going up next week. We have uh, our newsletter that's going to go out, uh, next week, we have our barbell medicine research review that's going to go out, uh, not next week, but the Monday following our paint first pain and rehab seminar in Boston. We have another pain rehab seminar coming up in January in Reno, Nevada. So if you want to sign up for that, you head over to eventbrite.com. Uh, we also have a few spots left up, uh, uh, open for our Portland, our regular barbell medicine seminar in Portland that's uh, coming up here in a few short weeks, So, again, you can sign up on our website or eventbrite.com. Search Barbell Medicine. Uh, Let's see what else. New Barbell Medicine shirts are going to be up in the shop tonight. There are our logo shirts, those cool ones that we were wearing at uh, Raw Nationals. Let's see. Is there anything else that I'm missing? I'm sure there's stuff that I'm missing. I'm sure there's stuff that I'm missing. But I want to make sure that we get to some good questions, some good content here. So let's go into Instagram and uh, get some questions. Now you guys who are going to watch this on YouTube in the future may be wondering, why aren't you streaming live on YouTube? Well, one, the algorithm is not great. They, like, don't – it doesn't pop up in people's search uh, 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 engines for, you know, when they search for barbell medicine Q&As. I don't know. So it's not good for views unless I uh, post it like this. Then two, internet connection, bandwidth, all that stuff is tough even if uh, I try to – do this like one man show for YouTube live streams. So, make it there in the future if I uh, get somebody else to help me out here. But otherwise, it's just me. So, all right, we're scrolling up, I'm gonna find some questions. Hey, Jordan, are leg extensions bad for your knees? So, this is actually something that comes up all the time leg extensions um, being quote-unquote bad for your knees. And so then you, when you ask people why do they say that it's bad for your knees, and they say, oh, well, the moment arm um, on the knee, there's a shearing force, and this is you know bad. That force, that type of force is bad for the knees because you're applying force at the end of the lower limb segment right near the ankle right? That's where the pad of the leg extension machine sits. And then there's uh, support underneath the actual knee joint itself. And so you've got this long moment arm and it causes shear forces on the knees or people say it's an open chain exercise, you know, and and those are inherently worse for (laughs) apparently pain outcomes, which is not based in evidence. Um, So the leg extension is a perfectly fine exercise, does not appear to cause knee injury, um, if you use, you know, any uh, reasonable definition for injury, so something that precludes folks from participating in sport or the recreational pursuits, uh, causes pain, right? Causes dysfunction, and it has to probably do that for a longer, uh, or a certain period of time, right? If it causes pain for five minutes and then it goes away completely, it doesn't affect your uh, ability to again participate in sport, participate in um, uh, recreational pursuits. Uh, you know, or activities of daily life for more than five minutes, then I don't know that that's an injury, right? So uh, yeah, you know, leg extensions are a fine exercise. They're probably, uh, or they're not very specific to squats or deadlifts or anything like that. So from a strength training perspective, Probably not terribly useful, but for a bodybuilding from a bodybuilding perspective, from a rehab uh, perspective, they they have some use, uh, particularly uh, getting people to um, believe that their knees aren't always going to hurt every time they apply force through that. Um, The reason why they're so useful in bodybuilding is because you can do a ton of reps and sets without really over-fatiguing the person, whereas you can't really do the same for squats. So uh, it's funny when Austin and I were actually at our CrossFit Level One MD. The uh, certification course in uh, Kauai, uh, Hawaii, Kauai, Hawaii. It, it was in Hawaii on the island of Kauai. Uh, we. Uh, it was funny because um, when it, when they started talking about pain and injury, I was the one who piped up and was like, "Hey, that's probably not correct. We should probably think about it like this and make sure not to build these, you know, harmful narratives." because Austin, you know, was, Ugh, his blood pressure was through the roof. And then when they uh, started talking about uh, some nutrition stuff that was inaccurate, uh, my blood pressure was through the roof, and Austin actually uh, was piped up. So it was kind of interesting that we both, like, had each other's backs on that. Um, and, yeah, they, they said at that seminar, like, oh, well, I can prove to you that the leg extension is a far more dangerous exercise than the squat, and is, like, you know, and goes through that mechanical analysis, which is uh, – not only a complete misrepresentation of where we're at with respect to uh uh, modeling pain um you know from the biomedical model versus biopsychosocial model and then also uh just you know completely like negates uh you, you know, people building their own uh, positive narratives around exercise. So if, again, if somebody tells you that, that you put a position of power, like, Hey, this exercise is dangerous for you. This exercise can hurt you. This exercise is uniquely dangerous. Uh, this exercise is bad for you. Then anytime that you are exposed to it, you know, you probably run a greater risk of having pain afterwards. Whereas it's just a completely neutral stimulus. Uh, as long as you don't color it or filter it incorrectly, based on your individual characteristics, which includes psychological uh, and social uh, uh, sort of uh, inputs, then you're probably gonna be fine. So I actually did some leg extensions today. There you go. All right, considerations for golf and tennis strength conditioning is not a question so much as uh, big topic, <laughs> right? Considerations for golf and tennis strength and conditioning. Um, so, from a conditioning standpoint, the way the way I kind of analyze this stuff. First, let's look at the conditioning components. So, what do you need for a golf uh, from a conditioning component? Probably not that much uniquely in the way of actual like cardiorespiratory fitness, um, just because the nature of the sport is you know you end up taking. Um, so many swings, they last this long, and you have a lot of downtime in between. Um, you might make a case that a person uh, with better aerobic fitness um, is be- better able to tolerate either multiple rounds in a day or multiple rounds over the course of a weekend, and I would get behind that. That being said, I don't think it's unique to golf. I think, you know, all sport, all recreational uh, uh physical pursuits probably benefit from increasing aerobic fitness Um, tennis is different because the plays can last longer so probably a bigger impetus for um, anaerobic conditioning in a way uh, and particularly uh, running um, at, at high speeds, because that's how they end up cutting across the course, uh, or the court, not the course, sorry, got golf and tennis, uh, mixed up there. Uh, from a strength perspective, you'd certainly want to participate in more high velocity force production stuff. So the weight's necessarily going to be lighter, um, so that, you know, you can train squat, bench, deadlift, press, or any variation of those things, um, at a lighter weight. At, so you can move them at high velocities. That would probably be, be a big, uh, component there. doesn't mean all of the work would be high velocity, but, a substantial portion of it uh you'd probably also want to do some rotational work as well um that being said when you look at like meta analyses particularly on golf i've been super interested in this because i've been playing a bunch of golf lately uh it seems like anything that makes golfers stronger and able to produce more force uh makes them uh be able to hit the ball a little harder a little more ball speed a little more clubhead speed so uh and this is obviously in the context of practicing the sport so you wouldn't just want to like go to the gym and not go to the range not go to the course not practice your sport that'd be silly uh, so yeah, I think there's a lot of different options. Um, there's probably no one set of exercises that is like, this is the best stuff, but uh, you would definitely have some high velocity work, some rotational work, and then your traditional S and C stuff. So hopefully that helps. Do you have any tips on how to use a belt? I've never used one. Yeah, so uh, a couple of tips. So one, purchasing a belt, like huh, I want a belt. What do I do? Um, I don't have any brand allegiance to um, any particular belt manufacturer. I personally think that most folks who are getting into strength training should get a four inch uh, wide belt. And then, as far as the thickness goes, I like a 13 millimeter belt. A 10 millimeter belt is the other, that's the other common size uh, for these uh, suede belts. I don't recommend a Velcro belt unless you're just doing Olympic weightlifting. Um, but yeah, other than that, I, I wouldn't get a, a Velcro belt, and they're not legal in most powerlifting federations or any powerlifting federations as far as I'm aware. Uh, in any event, I think 13 millimeter belt is – that's my preference. If you want to – if you have any inkling of being a power lifter or you just want a really good belt to go lift all the weights i'd get a four inch belt that's like the standard a 10 millimeter belt's a little thinner so if you're on the lighter side or uh have no no uh ideas about competing in the future 10 millimeters fine but i i would recommend a four inch wide 13 mil or sorry four inch uh yeah wide 13 millimeter thick belt single prong is my preference you double prong is fine a little bit more finicky to latch, but some people like those. My first belt was a double prong. And if you want a lever belt, that's cool too. I don't like them. Austin loves them. Uh, so that's anyway, you have a bunch of different options, but that's kind of how you would make your decision. Um, and then as far as how to use it, main thing is to figure out the appropriate level of tightness. Um, so, and where to wear it. Those, those are the two big considerations. So I would recommend wearing it as tight, uh, as tight as it can be without it moving around or compromising your ability to perform a valsalva maneuver so if it's so loose that it's moving around when you lift it's probably you should probably go in another hole if it's so tight that you can't actually take a big uh, deep breath because it's really constricting you and constricting your ability to expand your thoracic and, uh, and abdominal cavities then it's probably one too tight um, and then as far as where to wear it, I think you should put it on one, uh, hole a little too loose, then do a squat with it. And the belt will usually, uh, kind of drift to the right position for you to get started, you know, general rule of thumb. And you're going to kind of be able to figure it out over time where you prefer it, but that's a good place to start. So, uh, and then after you figure out where it's supposed to sit, cinch it down one more hole and you're ready to go. Uh, yeah, that's what I think you should do with a belt. You're gonna, you know... On a squat, for example, you're going to walk the weight out. You're going to do the Valsalva maneuver, which means take a big breath and hold it, bear down. Some people like to think about expanding their abdomen or uh, uh, bracing. I prefer the bracing, you know, where you're trying to almost make yourself uh, do a mini crunch while you take this big breath in and hold it. That's my preferred method. I don't think you should try to actively push your belly out against the belt. I don't think that's a terribly useful cue, although sometimes it works. You know, they're, they're, it's hard to speak in absolutes here. Let's see. Spring 2020 seminar in Virginia Beach. We are coming to Norfolk, Virginia in spring of 2020. I think it's spring. It's either spring or summer. I don't know like when the cutoff is, and I for- actually forget the date of our seminar, but it's on our 2020 schedule. Yes, I am filming my documentary reaction video. It's not like my documentary. It's to the Game Changers uh, video. Uh, the new Netflix, I think it's on Netflix, documentary about uh, vegan athletes. So that'll be fun. I'm going to film that tomorrow. Uh, Biggest mistake of your coaching career? I don't know. What's one thing you might have done differently in hindsight? I mean, the biggest thing, I think, which is not unique to coaching, it's just this is how, like, people learn and actually become, um, you know, educated and and experienced in their field. You just end up being overconfident at first. Um, So I, I think it would have been nice to have found a mentor earlier in my uh, coaching career that uh, uh, would have led me down the right path, you know. And and I I don't know that I can be too critical of myself um, because this just happens, you know. Uh, But probably the first two years of my coaching career, I was kind of like, I mean, it it was a perfect situation. (laughs) There wasn't a lot of information out there on coaching, just period. And then two, there weren't a lot of people who were like, you know, in the space, who were writing articles or were available for this, like, mentorship kind of thing. And so everyone's, like, out on their own in the wild, wild west. You really had Deep Squatter with Louis Simmons. YouTube was, like, barely, you know, getting, you know, lifting videos up, certainly not instructional stuff. And then seminar-wise, I mean, man, you, you really just had USAW and USA Track and Field. Um, that, those are the only pe- – and CrossFit. Those are the people doing seminars, and CrossFit had, like, just started, really. So – Yeah, I don't know. I don't want to be too critical of myself, but uh, if I had to do it over again, I would have probably tried to uh, seek out a a mentor earlier on in my uh, coaching career, and uh, that would have instilled in me some more humility right off the bat. That would have been a good idea. Thank you for podcast recommendation on lipids on the JAMA podcast. Oh, yeah. So um, if you have not gone over to, well, wherever you get your podcast from, JAMA Clinical Reviews, they have really great – Frequent podcast uploads where basically they interview and talk about the latest science with the researchers who performed the review. This one's actually with Brian Ferrance, who is an absolute savage in the world of lipidology and uh, cardiovascular disease. And this latest one, it's I think it's uh, Lipids and Cardiovascular Health, I think it's the title of it, <clears throat> on uh, JAMA, which stands for Journal of American Medical Association, Clinical Review. Would recommend listening to that. And he's got two new papers, I think, or, or at least one new paper that he's author on. And I don't, I don't know if he's a co-author on the second one but that was published in New England Journal of Medicine. The other one was published at JAMA. JAMA. So uh, in any event, he's got a bunch of other great papers on this subject as well. Uh, but would go, would recommend listening to that podcast. Is there a specific point where you would recommend someone stop weight loss after a significant drop to start gaining lean weight again, or just personal preference? Uh, I mean, as long as we're not talking about people who are going to an underweight situation based on BMI or um, who have lost a significant amount of muscle mass, it should become, you know, uh, at that point, you they would be cachectic if you lost a bunch of lean body mass and fat mass. Um, the, one of the differences between cachexia and sarcopenia is you can actually lose muscle mass and gain fat or have too much fat and be sarcopenic have sarcopenic obesity, whereas cachexia is like this global loss of flesh, uh, both fat and and muscle tissue. Uh, and there's some other syndromes, uh, syndromic kind of uh, 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 symptoms that are associated with that as well. So yeah, provided we're not talking about anything like that, yeah, it's really just personal preference. I mean, how, how big and jacked do you want to be? I think gaining lean body mass is certainly useful for gaining strength and also also carrying more lean body mass, obviously. But uh, it's, there's no like, this is how you know lean you should get uh, with respect to uh, kind of lean body mass. Again, as long as we're not talking about people who develop medical conditions from losing so much weight. Yeah. Does a leg press engage more muscle fibers than the barbell squat? Uh, no, I don't think so. And, and it really depends on, I, I, I kind of, go one step further to try to clarify this question so if we're just restricting the this analysis between leg press and barbell squat uh to muscle fibers of the lower extremity so of legs and we're not talking about the trunk or uh and and back um you know that that's the only real fair comparison that you can make because the squat obviously is gonna uh train uh engage more of those muscle fibers due to uh, the fact that it's freestanding, the, the uh, additional joints are moving. So you have a lot more muscle mass involved than a uh, leg press. But with respect to just lower extremity motor unit recruitment, yeah, it's, you're really not going to see a big difference. Um, probably about the same as long as both exercises are uh, being done to close to failure for, for a similar amount of reps. Yep. Good afternoon, doc. Well, it's, you know, what time is it? It's almost six PM. I guess where you're at. It's good afternoon. All right. How and why is training a few reps from failure beneficial for strength purposes? Uh, yeah. Well. So the first part of this, uh, strength is specific to uh, context uh, to how it's trained. You know. So if you, for instance, if you only train sets of ten, then you're likely to get the biggest payoff, the biggest transference, the biggest carryover to like a ten rep max or heavy set of ten. Conversely, if you only train fives, your biggest transference, carryover, uh, or uh, training outcome improvement is likely to be strength in sets of five. So, um, you know, you'd have to further refine this question um, for, you know, to to make it, uh, to clarify, are we talking about 1RM strength, 5RM strength, 10RM strength, 20RM strength, but if we're just talking about, Strength in general, <laughs> to the extent that it even exists, right, uh, the ability to produce force across a bunch of different, uh, in a bunch of different contexts. Uh, training a few reps shy of failure effectively is a strategy to recruit more motor units. So let's say you're doing a heavy set of five. Uh, the first rep, you know, and these are all just made up numbers. These are not experimentally determined numbers, but, you know, for the sake of this uh, argument, this, this general premise holds true. Um, so a set of five, heavy set of fives, like 86% of a one RM. So a five RM is about 86% of somebody's one rep max, give or take, because people are different. Um, you know, doing the first rep, you might engage, you know, 65, 70% of all of the muscle fibers that you can volitionally recruit, uh, two, you know, rep number two, you're at 75%, maybe getting close to 80% of all the volitional muscle fibers that you can volitionally recruit. Um, and this is not 100% of all your muscle fibers, just the ones that you have volitional access to. By rep three, you're getting close to 100% of all of the motor units that you can volitionally recruit. And then reps four and five, um, you're, you're you know pegged 100% or close enough to all of those muscle fibers that you can volitionally recruit. Um so by training close to failure, but not necessarily to failure, you get that motor unit recruitment. Same thing happens, it sets a 10, 20, 25, uh, 30. It's just the actual adaptations that you're selecting for are specific to the rep ranges that you're um, that you're engaging in. That's the biggest kind of difference there. Any plans for selling a barbell medicine banner for those of us those of us with garage gyms. So we just made a bunch for the coaches. I don't know if we'll be releasing them publicly, but it's not off the it's not off the chart not off the table. Off the chart? Off the table. Yeah. (laughs) What sort of training block are you running right now? I saw you enjoying those sweet 15s. Also, any reason for the 15s or just a bit of fun? Yeah, so this is just a pivot week. Uh, I just had a meet two weeks ago and uh, about ready to get back into regular training. Uh, Might have another week of just kind of low stress, uh, different exercises, different rep ranges, all that sort of stuff. So 15s, It's just. It's light enough where it's not going to cause a ton of fatigue, uh, get a nice little pump, and then move on. Yep. If you could go back and teach 30-year-old Jordan one piece of advice, what would it be? Uh, So I'm 34. So this is four years ago. What was I doing at age 30? Uh, I think I turned 30. I was in residency, I guess. What would I teach myself then? I don't know. I probably just would've tried to sleep more. <laughs> like I think that would have been the big thing. Try to get more sleep. Yeah. Uh almost done with the legacy, twelve week strength, and not sure which new template to do next. Did GPP hypertrophy the first half of twenty nineteen. Then did Thrall's free program before this and want to keep focusing on powerlifting. Yeah, if you did twelve week strength, I'd do powerlifting too. You did powerlifting two or powerlifting three. Yeah, one of those one of those two. If you're interested in in, in uh getting stronger those would be the two most focused ones and most appropriate for you given what you recently ran yeah is it a waste of a workout if i go out and drink later that night a waste of a workout no not necessarily i mean you know alcohol has some significant effects on uh muscle protein synthesis and muscles themselves and your sleep architecture and you know uh, all, all sorts of stuff. So it can certainly compromise or attenuate strength improvements if you go out and get uh, drunk. Sure, um, but having a few drinks, you know, probably not going to be a big deal. Yeah. If your goal is hypertrophy and you're an advanced lifter, could you make an argument that it would be counterintuitive to run a hypertrophy block while on a calorie uh, while on a calorie deficit? I mean, you're unlikely to gain a significant amount of lean body mass. While you're in a calorie deficit so I, I don't know that it's counterintuitive because uh in you know if the calorie deficit is last it runs long enough and is significant enough you know think about getting ready for a bodybuilding show uh, for example then some principles or practices that are normally uh, used in hypertrophy training uh, so higher reps uh, uh, significant amount of isolation exercises or less fatiguing exercise selection, stuff like that would all be useful, especially, uh, when you think about the main role of training, there's really, you know, two main roles primarily to reduce, uh, any lean body mass losses. And then two, uh, is sort of a metabolic thing, you know, burn calories, uh, to uh, increase the, uh, your sort of calorie burn, a uh, total daily energy expenditure throughout the day. Uh, so, you know, you have higher volume, usually in hypertrophy blocks, you have less fatiguing exercises, which can be useful during periods of higher stress, um, you know, higher, higher environmental stress, um, maybe in this case, due to the dietary constraints. And then you're still getting that muscle stimulation um, to, to preserve lean body mass to the best of uh, the ability you can. So. Jordan, thank you for all the info you have shared about training injuries. It has helped my training tremendously. Sick all right question any benefit to occasionally squat without knee sleeves if so when um so i think if you go and look at like what you know sort of benefits do you get out of squatting with knee sleeves that helps better answer this question so um as far as actual scientific literature on neoprene knee sleeves the best data we have on this stuff is in osteoarthritis uh, people tend to report lower pain scores during physical activity with a neoprene sleeve um, also increases some joint warmth um uh, or temperature of the joint, people uh, subjectively report uh, that they, their joints feel a little uh, looser, more mobile, uh, and you know, might be decrease their pain a, l- a little bit. Um, on the other hand, if you start relying on knee sleeves all the time, you know, this is a fairly innocuous kind of training tool, but you know, you would hate to like be hamstrung, pun intended, by uh, always using knee sleeves. so, should you always use knee sleeves? I mean I think if you're getting ready for a powerlifting meet and the performance in the gym and the training stress from the gym is very very important to driving uh, training outcomes, sure, you know. I also don't think, you know, there's any huge benefit to training without knee sleeves outside of, you know, if you ever forget them then you're fine. Um, if you wanted to do both, I think that's reasonable as well. I don't really have a strong opinion on this, and so when would I do it? You know, supplemental squat movement would probably be a good place to use it. Uh, pivot weeks, maybe don't wear your knee sleeves. Yeah, those would be the, the places I, I wouldn't wear them necessarily. Uh, let's see. Hi, Doc. If you have a diet, high in saturated fat, but you maintain good BMI, good waist circumference, good lean body mass, train hard, and normal blood pressure, are you still at risk? you still at an increased risk of ASCVD. So ASCVD stands for atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. So yes, diets high in saturated fat compared to diets that are lower in saturated fat tend to increase the risk of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. The uh, cut point is about 10% of total daily calories from saturated fat tend to promote deleterious changes in people's lipid profile, meaning that they have more atherogenic uh, lipid uh, profiles, um, usually LDL uh, particle concentration, so total LDL count. Um, some evidence with triglycerides in there, but that's for a whole another story. We have the podcast with uh, Flanagan is going to cover cover this in more more in depth. So, replacing uh, saturated fats with things like polyunsaturated fatty acids tend to be the most efficacious, monounsaturated fatty acids, still efficacious, replacing them with complex carbohydrates uh, that are high in fiber, also efficacious at re- reducing risk of a- ASCVD just atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, replacing them with sugar makes it worse. Uh, so yeah, I mean, if you're talking about uh, somebody who eats a diet that's got 11% of their total daily calories from um, saturated fat versus eight percent of total daily calories from saturated fat. It's probably not you know a big deal to to be in that range. But if you're talking about somebody who's following the carnivore diet and their total daily calorie intake, seventy percent of their total daily calories come from saturated fat, and they bring it down to ten. That would be a significant improvement. Now, uh, yeah, so having a good BMI, appropriate blood pressure, etc., all all good things. But you know there are other components that drive ASCVD. Um, so Would not recommend just yoloing your saturated fat intake. Jordan, loving strength three so far. One thing I've noticed when I deadlift the first rep of the set usually feels harder than the second and third. Any ideas why? Yeah, this is not an unusual phenomenon. So one, there's this thing called the warm-up effect where basically you're kind of tentative on the first rep because you're either uh, low-key afraid or scared that maybe it's going to hurt. Um, you know and you're not really allowing all of your volitional motor units to kind of fire with maximum force um, you kind of have a brake on you a uh, restrictor plate if you will and then there's also another uh, thing that we see where people set up for the first rep incorrectly um, you know and then they get feedback on that based on how the first rep moved, and then they fix it uh, for their second and third rep. Cerebellum and other pathways, to the brain and spinal cord are like, hey, let's refine this. Let's get you a little more efficient here. So uh, one thing you can do is just pull all of your sets as singles. So you pull a set of five as five singles, one way to kind of make sure that you can get over both of those things that warm up effect, and then also maybe if your technique is needs some refinement. Do you have any recommendations for someone wanting to start a blog but not fall into the trap of peddling misinformation because lack of expertise? Well, a couple tips. If you wanna start uh, like a resource that you're going to like keep up with and ideally direct people towards, uh, one is to come up with a bunch of information before you launch, so that way you're not searching for content immediately, like you have good content. Uh two you know making confident claims without supporting evidence is uh, is problematic, so that's uh something that you um, probably should avoid, and I think you'd be okay Dylan, just knowing knowing you and and kind of how your mind works and then finally, I don't know that I would be writing or opining about things that I have no expertise in, just you know like like I'm trying to think uh so for example. <laughs> I, uh, you know, am not an expert in reproductive physiology, uh, you know, fertility, for example. I know people who are experts in that. Um, and if I wanted to write something about that, and I would probably reach out to them either having, after having written uh, what I wanted to write and using the appropriate resources to kind of get me closer to the truth, but I would want to make sure that an expert weighs in on something that I don't, you know, I'm not necessarily uh, as well versed in as I'd like to be what are some good rehab exercises for the patella? My patella has been strained and is popping every time I squat and begins to hurt. Yeah, so the patella is a sesamoid bone, um, so you you wouldn't really want to rehab the bone unless it's fractured, Um, but if you have knee pain, then you would want to find ways to train that uh, do not exacerbate your knee pain and allow you to Uh, kind of move it through a range of motion, under load, uh, and ultimately get back to your previous activity level. So if what you're doing now doesn't let you do that, uh, I think that you would first go to exercise modification. So modifying the tempo, the range of motion, the load, all of those things, um, and maybe even the implement that you use, all be reasonable modifications. We came up with a knee rehab template that's available. Also, if you want very specific advice, would recommend doing a consult with Dr. Derek Miles or Dr. Michael Ray, uh, Dr. Michael Amato. These are the best in the biz and they run our pain rehab uh, service. Would you expect to lose strength running the hypertrophy template for an intermediate level lifter who had just come off a couple runs of the bridge 1.0 trying to figure out what to expect? Uh, so a good question. So one, I don't think that using the nomenclature beginner intermediate advanced lifter is terribly useful because it doesn't Affect management or expectations. So when somebody tells me they're an intermediate lifter, I don't know what that means, and it doesn't make me change their programming. Uh, and just similarly, if someone says they're advanced, I'm like, well, what? What does that mean? Um, yeah. Rather, I think you could have, you know, beginners and then non-beginners. So beginners just meaning that somebody who's un, you know, previously untrained. Uh, so would I expect somebody who has just run the bridge 1.0 a few times to get weaker on the hypertrophy template? And so again, strength is specific to what you're training. Um, The Bridge 1.0 program is much more focused on a squat bench deadlift than the hypertrophy template is going to be. Uh, That being said, given you know my this theoretical arc that i think you're following in your training program some beginner program and then the bridge and the bridge and then hypertrophy program i wouldn't expect you to get weaker i'm probably expect you to get stronger and i actually know some uh more experienced lifters who've gotten stronger on the hypertrophy template uh, one one guy pulled a pr deadlift close to 600 pounds while running the hypertrophy template so it's uh, my expectation is that you'll do great you'll do fine um i hope that uh that that is the case you know There's the alternative uh, situation where maybe you don't do as great, but at the same time, you're running a hypertrophy template, so I don't know that strength should be your first priority running whilst running that template. Yeah. During the bench press, right side pushing strength is a lot weaker when grinding heavy reps. The right scapula loses correct position. Right arm circumference is also one inch smaller. Should I do unilateral training? I don't necessarily think so. I don't know that I'd be grinding out a bunch of reps. Uh, It sounds like your technique could use some refinement. And, you know, depends how long you've been dealing with this and how long you've been training, you know, if you've only been training a year or less, I think this is one of those things that works itself out provided you get on the correct program and, uh, you know, you probably shouldn't be grinding most or any of your reps because it's just not useful. Is there a big improvement from eating 10 fruits and veggies per day versus five? Yeah. It's a dose dependent relationship, um, between, uh, plant matter consumption and overall health outcomes. Uh, so Yes. Is there anything inherently wrong? Oh, this is a good setup. Is there anything inherently wrong with rucking for conditioning? It's about the only form of cardio that I find I can enthusiastically adhere to. That's fine. I mean, I think it does limit the breadth of the breadth of your conditioning um, sort of adaptations because you're not engaging in your rowing or uh, cycling or anything else like that. So if you wanted to have a broad base of physical sort of conditioning, um, you would want to have exposed yourself to more training, right? More different types of training rather than just one. But you'll be great at rucking. Jordan just finished week one of the bridge. Is there a reason why day three starts with deadlift instead of squat? Yeah, we want you to deadlift fresh. There's nothing inherently better about starting with the squat first all the time. We're not trying to prioritize the squat over the deadlift. Trying to prioritize strength in the squat bench and deadlift on the program. Also, can I do the paused bench after the tempo squat? I would not. I would rather have you do the paused bench fresher and the tempo squat with more fatigue. It'll lighten it'll decrease the weight on the tempo squats and increase the weight on the paused bench relative than if you flip if you flip them. Yeah. Hey, what form of conditioning would you recommend for the vast majority of powerlifters? Treadmill, stationary bike? I do both. Treadmill, stationary bike, uh rower. Yeah. All that sort of stuff. Sled work. Yeah. If there's not a specific type. I would do a lot of different types. Physiologically, what genetic differences are there between two people with the same sex, anthropometry? body composition, muscle mass, and training history, but different Wilkes scores. Uh, so I think the last time I looked at this, there were close to 76 identified genetic loci that are associated with a distinct, like close to 1% or greater athletic advantage. So, and that that was... I mean I looked at that that must have been a year ago I think was the last time I actually did a deeper dive in that it would not surprise me if at this point we're close to 100 and you know at the end of it all when we've you know fully characterized this thing we're talking about hundreds of different gene loci so um, yeah a lot of different things a lot of different things uh, ACTN3 gene is like the most well characterized one but there's a again a plethora of them whenever i calculate my weight for let's say rp9 from an rp8 i always overshoot and do rp10 always ha- happens with upper body lifts i rest 3 minutes am i doing something wrong you could rest longer you know 3 you know 4 minutes if if this is a conditioning thing it depends how long you've been training or just take more conservative jumps would be the two strategies to use there i don't think taking rest periods that are longer than like 5 minutes are very productive for training um, you know, unless you're really close to a meet and you're trying to simulate meet situations where you're going to have, um, much longer rest periods, but, uh, yeah, more con- taking more conservative jumps be a good idea. Have you ever done RDLs off a deficit? So it's the same range of motion as a deadlift from the floor. Uh, yes. Although I've, I, I, do stiff-legged deadlifts like that. Um, so typically with RDLs, the idea for me, uh, it's not a, uh, I'm not trying to, um, mimic the same range of motion. I'm trying to really work. The top down while maintaining um, the n- normal uh, uh, extension of the spine. Uh, and then again, I'm, I'm trying to make it a little less fatiguing than pulls from the floor. Um, Stiff legged deadlifts uh, off a deficit um, end up being a little, you know, about the same amount of fatigue as a regular deadlift if you're using like similar RPEs and rep ranges, but usually you'll do them for higher reps. When to take creatine for best results? There's no best time, just as long as you take it every day. Yeah, I did a video about this. Uh, It's on the tubes on the Barbell Medicine channel. So would recommend watching that on creatine dosing. Hey, Jordan, thoughts on creatine causing hair loss? Apparently there was a study with rugby players and maybe you've seen it. Yeah, so it was not about creatine and hair loss. It was about creatine and uh, uh, DHT levels. So DHT levels um, are in general associated, like higher DHT levels are in general associated with uh, male pattern baldness. However um dht levels fluctuate throughout the day dht receptor density so that's target side of activity also fluctuate in response to dht levels and and so just saying that something increases dht doesn't necessarily mean it increases male pattern baldness and that study did not actually look at male pattern baldness uh, at all Uh, so right now we don't really have uh, evidence that this occurs and further I think the big thing is if you have male pattern baldness, if it runs in your family, like there's not a lot that you can do to make that better. Um, There are some medications that you can take that uh, may preserve some uh, uh, hair. um, But as far as actually like, and then accelerating it, you know, if you take um, anabolic androgenic steroids, that tends to accelerate male pattern baldness. But um, creatine, I don't think is is quite there yet. So does VO2 max increase benefits? hypertrophy strength in any way other than quicker recovery between sets oh does a VO two max increase hypertrophy or strength in any way other than quicker recovery between sets uh yeah so outside of like improved work capacity so that you're ready to train uh, more readily uh, for the next set you also can handle more training which you'll actually need because there's a dose uh, dependent relationship between training volume and strength and hypertrophy so Hey, Jordan, thanks for taking the time to do these and answering our questions. You're welcome. How much weight loss would you recommend in a specific period? Currently at 217, starting from 232. Would it be beneficial to take a break from a calorie deficit? Uh, Yeah, so again, it depends on context. If you have a person who's going to be adherent either way, I don't see a reason to take a break from the diet. It's not necessarily uh, going to improve outcomes unless it would improve adherence. If adherence is good... Um, and there uh, uh, and/ or there's some indication to continue losing weight because the risk of not losing weight is greater than uh, uh, um, you know maintaining the than the benefits of maintaining weight, then I would encourage further weight loss. So uh, usually two and a half percent body weight per month is kind of the recommendation there. Jordan, my biomechanics professor, says deep squats is horrible for your knees, and I cringed. I used to ask him for a citation. He's asking for citation. Then you can, uh, there's a uh, Schoenfeld study and a Hartman, H-A-A-R-T-M-A-N-N. Is it two A's or two N's or both? I forget. Uh, those two recent studies on squat biomechanics actually like fully rebuts anything your biomechanics professor suggests about this. And then I'm kind of like, why is this his opinion? Yeesh. Jordan, do you recommend adding any conditioning routines, say once per week for the nov- for novices starting... Linear progression, yeah. Well, one, I don't recommend starting linear progression. I think the program has many holes in it, uh, and would not. And conditioning is one of them. Would not recommend. I would recommend you start our beginner template. It's much better program for most individuals and includes conditioning, and that would be my recommendation for conditioning for untrained individuals. I believe you said that the bench press responds better to higher volume than, say, the back squat. Uh, no, I didn't say that. Yeah, there's a dose-dependent relationship between training volume and strength and and hypertrophy, and this is, you know, universal. Like, as far as absolute amounts, it might be higher for upper body stuff, but I don't necessarily believe that to be true either. Yeah. Hey, cool glasses. Thanks. (laughs) Finally out of a rotation and able to catch this live. going to enjoy this with some wine. Cheers. Cheers. Topo Chico. Drink of champions. I feel like I should put this out of the frame so, like, we're not advertising for them. Thanks for taking a pick with me at Raw Nationals. It was great meeting you guys. We also need those Barbell Medicine singlets to come back. Yeah, we're uh, <laughs> that's awesome, man. Good to see you on here. Um, I think we're going to make some SPD singlets with the Barbell Medicine logo on them. Uh, SPD. They like our stuff, and we like their stuff, so it's going to be great. Jordan, deadlift bench and press are all going up. Okay. Squat has been stuck at 340 for about eight months. Should I just quit lifting and do Pilates instead? Probably not. I'd be one, curious to know what programming you're running. And, you know, overall what your squat has looked like in the last eight months from a, you know, uh, a progression or regression standpoint. Uh, yeah. But if your deadlifts is going up and your bench is going up, it seems like you still have uh, some progress left in you. Since older adults are more uh, anabolically resistant than younger folks, how many grams per kilo body weight of protein do you recommend per day? Yeah. So the recommendations from Espen uh, Uh, For healthy aging, I believe is 1.2 to 2 grams per kilogram body weight per day. Um, That being said, our general recommendation includes older individuals, 1.6, all the way up to 3.1 grams per kilo uh, per day, just depending on, you know, other context, contextual factors like gaining weight, losing weight, you know, some disease that makes them more anabolic resistant or not. Uh, But yeah, you know, if you get close to that one gram per pound, which is 2.2 grams per kilogram body weight per day then you're going to be okay. I don't know that you need to make it more complicated than that. Doc, are the Bridge 3.0 and Strength 1 significantly different? They are, yes. Trying to decide whether or not to buy Strength 1. I already own Bridge 3. Yeah, so I think you know if you are going to limit, if you're going to train three days per week and you're interested in driving up your bench press, your squat and your deadlift, Strength 1 is, is the plan. If you can expand your training to four days a week, would we'll do Strength 2. Yeah, given that you just ran the Bridge 3.0. Is stimulation of the lymphatic system via foam rolling one of the reasons people find a perceived benefit from it? Uh, No. The foam rolling does not stimulate the lymphatic system because it's, uh, you know, not... You can, you know, mechanical compression can, like, move things around, but it's not stimulating. Yeah, foam rolling does not do anything. does not decrease injury risk, doesn't decrease uh, pain... Or, or things like DOMS, delayed onset muscle soreness, doesn't inc- uh, decrease risk of injury, and it actually can reduce performance uh, and potentially cause harm as well if you have a very aggressive uh, foam rolling session. If It makes you feel better. I mean, that's cool. I would do it after training, but I would not recommend people do it to start out with. The main thing is it builds these narratives that are not great. Like the narrative that it builds is that you need to do this sort of thing Uh, mechanically to repair yourself, restore yourself, because you are otherwise broken, damaged, and are like a car or a machine, when that's not true. We are highly adaptable, highly resilient, you know, biological organisms. So is there a general recommendation for how much one should increase training volume if they decided more volume is necessary? No, unfortunately not. Yeah, I think, you know, usually somewhere in that 10 to 20% range of weekly volume, Tends to be like my sweet spot, yeah. Current med student can't really afford to pay for the templates. Any alternatives? I'm in the beginner to intermediate range. Well, our beginner prescription is free. It's free download. Bridge 1.0 is a free download. General strength training program is free download. That being said, I mean I was in med school. I, I remember, and I think you know, one night of drinking with your with the buddies, you know, it gets you a template. So. Yeah. Can creatine lead to urinating more frequently? Uh no, not that I've not that I've seen any data on. So, do you think fasting 24 hours one time per week is an acceptable strategy for calorie reduction? Um no, I don't. Yeah. The data on intermittent fasting suggests that people don't lose more weight when they do it. The the attrition rate is a little higher, but maybe not statistically significant between so the dropout rate, right, for people in intermittent fasting arms versus regular calorie restriction arms is similar, although maybe a little higher in intermittent fasting. Although again, it might not be significant. So I don't know if that's really a valid criticism. Um, you know, on the other hand, if someone prefers intermittent fasting, that's fine. But just doing it one day a week, it doesn't fix the 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 main problem, which is dietary patterns. It's just doing something one day a week, it's a might be a decent start for somebody you know to get them in the right headspace to get them more resources more tools more different strategies to adhere to a calorie restricted diet but this is not going to be enough for most folks physician prescribed testosterone for short-term fat loss thoughts i mean for that indication uh nope but there's usually more to the story than that so would reserve judgment but uh yeah not a great medication for short-term fat loss just for that indication alone on bench, my feet tend to slip on my lifting platform. Any coating to put down on the platform, or possibly something on my shoes. Uh, if you're on wood, the you know like a like a a, a wooden platform, you might need to use uh, rubber mats um, underneath the bench and underneath your feet. Uh, if you can put carpet over it, that would work. Do you have any ab work besides what you na- what naturally occurs in the lifts? Uh, we all see you doing regularly. Yeah, I do a lot of ab wheel rollouts. Uh, V-sits, L-sits, stuff like that Yeah. Random topic change But I saw the story about the new Oh, lenses, yeah uh, Why'd you get a 50 but not a 35 And what Sony body do you shoot with uh, So I have a 35 uh, F1.2 Sigma Art Lens I also have their 24 or 1.4 uh, So I have a bunch of Primes now I think my Prime collection is set uh, For video work I have an A6500 and an A7R 3 is what I shoot on I feel like it's hard to train consistently in medical school. Do you have any tips? Yeah, I mean, I can empathize because, uh, you know, you're very busy. And uh, you may not have uh, be as fortunate to have either a gym in your garage or a gym that's on campus or close to you or whatever. But honestly, medical school, like especially the preclinical years, there's like a substantial amount of time to train. Um, And if you're not going to take the 60 minutes or 90 minutes out of your day to dedicate to your own well-being, your own... Um, you know, health, I don't know how to convince you that that's more important than something else. I think there's all this pressure also. Like, I can understand, like, all this pressure. you got to learn everything. You have to know everything and whatever. But, like, you know, if you're really unhealthy and um, really unhappy and training helps you know, make you healthier and, and happier, then I think you have to engage in training. And, uh, yeah, Austin and I talked about this on our uh, training pro- uh, podcast or our medical uh, podcast. Yeah, I, I don't know. It was not something that I struggled with, Um, but if it were me and I was struggling with it, then I would just, I would literally schedule it. I'd put it in my phone um, after whenever my last, you know, mandatory thing is. I have to go to the gym. I'd make sure I had my gym clothes either on my bag or in my car if I drove to can't drove on campus, and then I would go. Yeah, that's what I would do. Jordan, to what extent is hypertrophy possible without a calorie surplus? My current thinking is the more trained a person, the less this is possible. Yeah, in general, you know, the more trained you become, the less it's possible. Uh, also, you know, there's a big genetic component here, you know, maybe 50, 60, 70 percent of the hypertrophy potential of a person's genetically, you know, influenced or determined, uh, you know, guided. <laughs> you know, people aren't going to like that, but, you know, sometimes it do be like that. Uh, in any event, I think that if you're not gaining weight, the idea that you're gaining substantial amounts of lean body mass – probably uh, is not, not true. Um, some people will, yeah. Um, particularly as the less trained they are, the more favorable their genetic profile is. Yep. Are slower rates of weight loss beneficial from a loose skin perspective? Uh, not from any objective standpoint that I've seen, no. What's the link between osteoarthritis and wear and tear? So since you're in medical school, I'm gonna use the Socratic method and direct you to our resources on osteoarthritis. But let's just, here's a thought experiment uh for the people at home um so osteoarthritis uh previously was you know and maybe and sometimes currently depending on who's giving the diagnosis was referred to as this diagnosis of wear and tear your wear and tear on the joints which is and then when you talk about obesity people who have a higher rates of osteoarthritis is because you're putting more force more pressure on the joints it's like okay if that's your explanation we'll why, why do obese people also have osteoarthritis in their wrists and fingers and elbows, these non-weight-bearing joints? Does't make sense, right? So uh, one of the connections between obesity and osteoarthritis that also kind of uh, elucidated these pathways, other pathways of osteoarthritis have to do with adipokines and other uh, sort of inflammatory uh, signaling molecules that uh, ultimately can cause uh osteoarthritis um what's the best thing for osteoarthritis usually physical activity yeah yeah like first line treatment in addition to education thoughts on fiber supplementation it's reasonable yeah psyllium husk it's fine i think you know after eating uh, recommending eating more fruits and vegetables uh that can be a reasonable uh recommendation sure what's the correlation between heavy squats and ascending aortic aneurysm no correlation yeah (laughs) yeah for, fortunately uh, ascending aortic aneurysms are rare and ascending aortic aneurysms uh, during squatting are also rare it's funny because uh, at a seminar in new york this guy wrote down on his um you know intake form like that he had an ascending aortic aneurysm and uh i, I was like i went up to him and i was like hey man uh is this okay <laughs> like have you been cleared to exercise by your doctor uh you know he goes well yeah uh, i'm a doctor also you know etc cetera, etc cetera. and i was like okay As long as you guys know and are in agreement, we're good to go here. Jordan, do you think there is an anecdotal correlation between upper body muscle mass and bench press performance? Uh, I don't just think there's an anecdotal correlation. I think there's empirical, you know, and and also just objective scientific evidence between upper body muscle mass and uh, bench press performance. Yeah. So according to my calculations, I've been here for like almost an hour. So thank you so much for watching here on Instagram, YouTube.